2: Drabblecast, episode 302. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Simulations on this week's show. Sometimes imitations of the real thing help us better understand the real thing. Croutons help us better understand stale bread, Miley Cyrus helps us better understand unthinkable Nazi war experiments. Anderson Cooper's Chewbacca impression helps us better understand what it sounds like to wake up somebody by pooping on them. (coughs) Let's start things off, per usual, with a drabble. Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. It's fun and anyone can do it. Give it a try. Send yours into submissions at drabblecast.org. Maybe we'll run it on the show. This week's Drabble is called Exponential Growth, and it comes to us from Drabblecast forum member Guns of Chacovia. Here goes. I still remember the day we brought Jeremy home. And all the scrapes, laughs, and video games. I remember his college graduation, too. He was literally beaming the whole ceremony. Selena and I felt proud of his achievements and his hard-wired work ethic, like we were both responsible and not responsible. Weird. With his laser focus and seemingly endless memory, he coasted through grad school. He called us after his first job interview. He was shaking with excitement, knew he'd nailed it. Then, he just froze. Deactivated. Redundant. Successful. After 25 years, the state decided we'd earned our parenting license. And now with your norm simulation, our narrator this week, Paul Huntington.
0: Tonight's featured story comes from Ben Bova, the author of over a hundred books, including the Exile series and the Orion series. In his illustrious career, he has served as the editor for both Analog Science Fiction and Omni, as well as being the president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. His latest novel, New Earth, is on bookshelves now. The title of tonight's story, The Next Logical Step. Our narrator for this evening is Paul Huntington, who, while having no discernible skills as a narrator, has nonetheless kidnapped my cat and refuses to release him until I acquiesce to all of his demands. Carl, if you're listening, I'm doing everything I can to get you back. Daddy loves you. I don't really see where the problem has anything to do with me, the CIA man said. And frankly, there are a lot of more important things that I could be doing. Ford, the physicist, glanced at General Leroy. The general had that quizzical expression on his face, the look that meant he was about to do something decisive. Would you like to see the problem firsthand? the general said, innocently. The CIA man took a quick look at his wristwatch. Okay, if it doesn't take too long. It's late enough already. It won't take very long, will it, Ford? The general said, getting out of his chair. Not very long. Only a lifetime. The CIA man grunted as they went to the doorway and left the general's office. Going down the dark, deserted hallway, their footsteps echoed hollowly. I can't overemphasize the seriousness of the problem. Eight ranking members of the general staff have either resigned or gone straight to the violent ward after just one session with the computer. The CIA man scowled. Is this area secure? General Leroy's face turned red. This entire edifice is as secure as any in the free world, mister. And it's empty. We're the only living people inside at this hour. I'm not taking any chances. Perhaps if I explain the computer a little more? Ford said, changing the subject. You'll know what to expect. Good idea, said the man from the CIA. We told you that this is the most modern, complex, and delicate computer in the world. Nothing like it has ever been attempted. Anywhere. I know that they don't have anything like it, the CIA man agreed. And you also know, I suppose... That it was built to simulate actual war situations. We fight wars in this computer. With missiles and bombs and gas. Real wars. Down to the tiniest detail. The computer tells us what will happen to every missile. Every city. Every man who dies. How many planes are lost. How many trucks will fail to start in a cold morning. Whether a battle is won or lost. General Leroy interrupted. The computer runs these analyses for both sides. So we can see what's happening to them, too. The CIA man gestured impatiently. Wargame simulations aren't new. You've been doing them for years. Yes, but this machine is different. Ford pointed out. It not only gives a much more detailed wargame, it's the next logical step in the development of the machine-simulated wargames. He hesitated dramatically. Well, what is it? We've added a variation on the electroencephalograph. The CAA man stopped. The electro-what? The electroencephalograph, Uh, the device that reads electronic impulses in your brain? Like the electrocardiograph. Oh. But you see, we've given the EEG a reverse twist. Instead of using a machine that makes a recording of the brain's electrical wave output, we've developed a device that'll take the computer's read-output tapes and turn them into electrical impulses that are put into your brain. I don't get it. General Leroy took over. You sit at the machine's control console. A helmet is placed over your head. You set the machine in operation. You see the results. Yes, Ford went on. Instead of reading rows of figures from the computer's printer, you actually see the war being fought. Complete auditory and visual hallucinations, you can watch the progress of the battles, and as you change strategy and tactics, you can see the results before your eyes. The idea, originally, was to make it easier for general staff to visualize strategic situations, General Leroy said. But everyone who's used the machine has either resigned his commission or gone insane, Ford added. The CIA man cocked an eye at Leroy. You've used the computer. Correct. And you've neither resigned or cracked up. General Leroy nodded. I called you in. Before the CIA man could comment, Ford said, The The computer's right inside this doorway. Let's get this over with while the building is still empty. They stepped in. The physicist and the general showed the CIA man through the room-filling rows of massive consoles. It's all transistorized and subiniturized, of course, Ford explained. That's the only way we could build so much detail into the machine and still have it small enough to fit inside a single building. A single building? Oh, yes. This is only the control room. Most of the building is taken up by the circuits, the memory banks, and the rest of it. Hmm... They showed him finally to a small desk, studded with control buttons and dials. The single spotlight above the desk lit brilliantly, in harsh contrast to the semi-darkness of the rest of the room. "'Since you've never run the computer before?' Ford said. "'General Leroy will do the controlling. You just sit and watch what happens.' The general sat in one of the well-padded chairs and donned a grotesque headgear that was connected to the desk by a half-dozen wires." The CIA man took his chair slowly. When they put one of the bulky helmets on him, he looked up at them, squinting a little in the bright light. This… this isn't going to… well, do me any damage, is it? My goodness, no, Ford said. You mean mentally? No, of course not. Y- you are not on the general staff, so it shouldn't… well, it won't affect you the way it did the others. Their reaction had nothing to do with computer, per se. Several civilians have used the computer with no ill effects, General Leroy said. Ford has used it many times. The CIA man nodded, and they closed the transparent visor over his face. He sat there and watched General Leroy press a series of buttons, then turn a dial. Can you hear me? The General's voice came muffled through the helmet. Yes, he said. All right, here we go. You're familiar with Situation 121. That's what we're going to be seeing. Situation 121 was a standard war game. The CIA man was well acquainted with it. He watched the general flip a switch and then sat back and folded his arms over his chest. A row of lights on the desk console began blinking, on and off, one, two, three, down to the end of the row then back to the beginning again, on and off, on and off. And then, somehow, he could see it. He was poised incredibly somewhere in space, and he could see it all in a funny, blurry, double-sided, dream-like way. He seemed to be seeing several pictures and hearing many voices all at once. It was all mixed up, and yet it made a weird kind of sense— for a panicked instant, he wanted to rip the helmet off of his head. It's only an illusion, he told himself, forcing calm on unwilling nerves. Only an illusion. But it seemed strangely real. He was watching the Gulf of Mexico. He could see Florida off to his right, and the arching coast of the southeastern United States. He could even make out the Rio Grande River. Situation 121 started, he remembered with the discovery of missile-bearing enemy submarines in the Gulf. Even as he watched the whole area, as though perched on a satellite, he could see underwater and close up the menacing shadowy figure of a submarine gliding through the crystal blue sea. He saw, too, a patrol plane, which spotted the submarine and sent an urgent radio warning. The underwater picture dissolved in a bewildering burst of bubbles. The missile had been launched. Within seconds, another burst. This time, a nuclear depth charge utterly destroyed the submarine. It was... confusing. He was everywhere at once. The details were overpowering. But the total picture was agonizingly clear. Six submarines fired missiles from the Gulf of Mexico. Four were immediately sunk. But too late. New Orleans, St. Louis and three Air Force bases were obliterated by hydrogen fusion warheads. The CIA man was familiar with the opening stages of the war. The first missile fired at the United States was the signal for whole fleets of missiles and bombers to launch themselves at the enemy. It was confusing to see the world at once. At times, he could not tell if the fireball in the mushroom cloud was over Chicago or Shanghai, New York or Novosibirsk. Baltimore, or Budapest. It did not make much difference, really. They all got it in the first few hours of the war, as did London and Moscow, Washington and Peking, Detroit and Delhi, and many, many more. The defensive systems on all sides seemed to operate well, except that there were never enough anti-missiles. Defense systems were expensive as compared to attack rockets. It was cheaper to build a deterrent than to defend against it. The missiles flashed up from submarines and railway cars, from underground silos and stratospheric jets. Secret ones fired automatically when a certain airbase post ceased beaming a restraining radio signal. And when the bombs ran out, the missiles carried dust and germs and gas. On and on. For six days and 6 firelit nights. Launch. Boost. Coast. Re-enter. Death. And now it was over, the CIA man thought. The missiles were gone. The airplanes were exhausted. The nations that had built the weapons no longer existed. By all the rules he knew of, the war should have ended. Yet, the fighting did not end. The machine knew better. There were still many ways to kill an enemy. Time-tested ways. There were armies fighting in four continents, armies that had marched over land or splashed ashore from the sea or dropped out of the skies. Incredibly, the war went on. When the tanks ran out of gas, and the flamethrowers were useless, and even the prosaic artillery pieces ran out of rounds to fire, there were still simple guns, and even simpler bayonets and swords. The proud armies, the descendants of the Alexanders, and the Caesars, and the Temujins and the Wellingtons, and the Grants, and Rommels, relived their evolution in reverse. The war went on. Slowly, inevitably, the armies split apart into smaller and smaller units, until the tortured countryside that so recently had felt the impact of nuclear war once again knew the tread of bands of armed marauders. Tiny, savage groups, stranded in alien lands, far from the homes and families that they knew to be destroyed, carried on a mockery of war, lived off the land fought their own countrymen if the occasion suited, and revived the ancient terror of hand-wielded, personal, one head at a time, killing. The CIA man watched the world disintegrate. Death was an individual business now, and none the better for no longer being mass-produced. In agonized fascination, He saw the myriad ways in which a man might die. Murder was only one of them. Radiation, disease, toxic gases that lingered and drifted on the once-innocent winds, and finally, the most efficient destroyer of them all, starvation. Six billion people, give or take a meaningless hundred million, lived on planet Earth when the war began. Now, with the tenuous threat of civilization burned away, most of those who were not killed by the fighting itself succumbed inexorably to starvation. Not everyone died, of course. Life went on. Some were lucky. A long darkness settled on the world. Life went on for a few... A pitiful view. A bitter, hateful, suspicious, savage view. Cities became pest holes. Books became fuel. Knowledge died. Civilization was completely gone from the planet Earth. The helmet was lifted slowly off his head. The CIA man found that he was too weak to raise his arms and help. He was shivering and damp with perspiration. Now you see, Ford said quietly, why the military men cracked up when they used the computer. General Leroy, even, was pale. How can a man, with any conscience at all, direct a military operation when he knows that that Will be the consequence. The CIA man struck up a cigarette and pulled hard on it. He exhaled sharply. Are all the war games like that? Every plan? Some are worse, Ford said. We we picked an average one for you. Even some of the brushfire games get out of hand and end up like that. So what do you intend to do? Why did you call me in? What can I do? You're with the CIA, the general said. Don't you handle espionage? Well, yes, but what's that got to do with it? The general looked at him. It seems to me that the next logical step is to make damn sure that they get the plans to this computer. And fast.
2: And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed Empathy. In the moment when I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then in that very moment, I also love him, says Orson Scott Card in Ender's Game. It's impossible to really understand somebody, what they want, what they believe, and not love them the way they love themselves. Or maybe it's just fear of mutually insured destruction that sucks. Yeah, it's mostly that. You usually only see half the situation in the first place before you start going eye for an eye with your enemy. Isn't it odd that we always want to go for the eyes? If you enjoyed this week's story, consider donating to the Drabblecast. We rely on your support to keep the show going each week. One person that doesn't need a simulation to realize this is our kick-ass donor of the week this week, Lori Ann Simmons. Lori works in the HR department of a paper company near Chicago. Yes, it's kind of like the show The Office, she says, but only the UK version, and with considerably more drinking and quiet depression. Her heart aches for the overwhelming beauty and vastness of the universe, and all the things within it, which she'll never understand. But she's a pretty happy girl otherwise. She says she has a simultaneous desire to both fully realize the human experience and also not have to sit too close to other people on the train. Her family operates A&S Rescue, a foster-based, non-profit pit bull rescue program in the Chicago land area. Due to this, mostly, she lives with seven dogs who are completely convinced that they are people instead of dogs. Man, think about how wigged out they're going to be when they find out they're not even dogs, they're actually simulations of dogs. She's a member of an open writing critique group, affectionate dubbed the Critonomicon, and led by the magnanimous and talented author Rich Weddick. They meet at the Perla Cafe in Evanston the second Thursday of every month, so if you're in the area, she says, feel free to stop by and let a group of strangers read your writing and judge you accordingly. No, seriously, she says, they're great folks, and if you've got something you'd like to share, it's a fantastic experience. Well, we certainly appreciate your support of the Drabblecast, Lori. We couldn't do this without you. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Straw Man, with this one here. Just at shift change, when the crowd at the fire station would be extra large, Jonathan rushed in and screamed, Movie! Nice. Nice. 100 characters, not counting spaces. Fun and quick. Give it a shot. Post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter at TheDrabbleCast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The DrabbleCast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives Mm -hmm. License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes. Tell a friend about us. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Phil Pumphrey. Phil lives and works in the cold west of Scotland. When not arting for the Drabblecast, he continues to plan world domination, aided by his growing army of nieces, nephews, and godchildren. Our program this week is brought to you by managing editor Nikki Drayden, our submissions editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you it won't damage you the way it did the others. Their reaction had nothing to do with the computer, per se. <laughs> An hour ago, this place was loaded. and noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all slurred when slowed.